Uh, let's look in First John chapter three is where we've been now for some time, and we continue or continue the study through. Lord willing, we'll finish this chapter uh, this evening, beginning our reading in verse twenty. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. And he that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him, and and He in Him. And hereby we know that He abideth in us by the Spirit which He hath given us. Throughout these studies, uh, over the last many weeks, we have looked at this epistle of 1 John concerning these tests, if you will, or these proofs of genuine, authentic Christianity, of Christ-like living due to the reality that you are in Christ, Christ is in you, as John just said, even in this passage, when he says that he that keepeth his commandments, verse 24, dwelleth in him and he in him. And, and this is interesting if you notice, if you will notice the order in which John even states this uh, in verse 24 in relation to our studies in Ephesians on Sunday mornings and, and the two divisions of the entire epistle of Ephesians that Paul has given us. Look at what John says again. Pay close attention to this. He that keepeth his commandments, and we've already seen what that means. Keepeth is not just simply doing in an outward obedience, as would appear to be obedience, but rather it is that we cherish and we value that which God cherishes and values, that we love righteousness because He is righteous and He dwells in us. But notice what He says here. He that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him, and He in Him. So what He's saying here, of course, is that we, those who keep His commandments, dwelleth in God, in Christ, and Christ dwells in that individual. And so that goes right along with what Paul has stated in all of Ephesians concerning the position we have in Christ, and now Christ is dwelling and living in us. And so that's what, exactly what Paul says is what John is stating here in this portion of the epistle in the latter, latter uh, portion of chapter 3. And through these tests and through these proofs of Christianity or fellowship with the Lord, uh, we, we have seen that it's through these we find we not only can have discernment concerning those who make a profession of faith, but as well, we have confidence of the authenticity of our professed fellowship with the Lord as we examine our lives in accordance with John's epistle. And so as we read through these tests, uh, we see or these proofs and these evidences that John lists throughout this epistle, we begin to understand not only that there, it not only does it expose those who make empty professions without any true evidence of, of the life of Christ within them, but also it causes us to examine ourselves according to the truth that we are given, and it provides us confidence that we know God, that God is in us, because it's not, again, just simply some experiential matter that we know God is in us. At one moment, oh, we had this experience, therefore we know that we know God. No, that, that's the beginning but then there's this continued evidence of this reality of Christ in us as we are in Him. And so this, this is being revealed throughout the, the text here in this epistle of 1 John. So these tests of fellowship, we must recognize that these are not intended to help motivate us to do right. And I'm afraid if we're not careful, uh, you, know, you can start viewing Scripture even like these passages here as though you'll get nothing more than morality out of it. And that's not at all what John is stating. So John has not provided this letter 
in an effort to get us to do something. Or saying, okay, well, if you're really genuinely born again, then you must do this, you need to do this. That's not what this is. This is not a means of motivation. Uh, but rather, these evidences John has listed, they serve as proof that one is in a right relationship and fellowship with God. In other words, these tests of fellowship which serve as proof of salvation are not the results of one just simply striving to live the Christian life, but they are the evidence of the Lord working and living within and through one's life. And do not confuse those two statements. You must understand this. Listen, this is not about, well, if you're a good Christian, then you need to start doing this better. That is not at all what John is talking about. John is saying, if you are born again in genuine fellowship with God, then all of this is true in you. And if it's not true in you, then guess what? You are not born again. So he's not saying try to do better. That has nothing to do with what John is teaching here whatsoever. And it's imperative that you recognize that as you examine your own life. Because even in examining our own lives, according to this passage and this epistle and the scripture, if, it's easy for one to begin to say, well, I, I should do this better than I do, or I probably should, this isn't how I should be about this. And though we are obviously always needing to submit to the Lord and allow His Word through the power of His Spirit to correct us, to instruct us, and we conform to that, yes, that is true. Again, that is not the intent of John's writing here, though. Paul, John is not instructing, as Paul may do sometimes in Scripture, not that John doesn't instruct at all, but in this passage, as we have seen it, this is not simply instruction of what we should be doing. It's saying, John is again saying, if this is real in you, if this is genuine in you, then you're in genuine fellowship with God. And if it's not, then you're not. And it's really just that symbol. So verse 20, look at what John says. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. So there are two significant truths which John declares in this verse. First, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And that's absolute, absolutely true. God knows us better than we know even ourselves. One of the things that can plague us as believers even is our past or even present sin, which sin should bother us as believers, obviously. It will bother us. And even if it were true that we were blameless in the eyes of everyone we know or everyone who knows us, the truth remains that we know the sin of our hearts, at least to a degree. Now, I'm not even claiming that we can fully know our hearts. Scripture speaks to that. But yet, I would state it like this. Everyone else may not know, but we know our secrets. Is that not true? We know our secrets. And we know that we, how wicked our flesh really is. Maybe not to the ultimate degree of wickedness. We may not understand that completely, but we do know that we are wicked. Might I say this? I know that I am more wicked than you may think that I am. And I'm also convinced that you're more wicked than you may think you are, and that I even may think you are. Meaning the flesh is what I'm talking about, the wickedness of our flesh. In Christ, if we've been redeemed in Christ, then yes, we are justified and we are holy and we are blameless before Him. And we recognize that as Paul teaches even in Ephesians chapter 1. However, at the same time, we contend with a wicked flesh and we are faced with that every single day of our lives. And I know my flesh is wicked. That's what I'm saying to you. And you know really that your flesh is wicked. I don't know that we know just is, but we know ourselves, even the very secrets of our hearts or the secrets of our past or even present sin that we are aware of when others may not be. 
And so it's imperative that we acknowledge and recognize that. And here what John says is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. In verse 19 he says, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. We know because God's love is worked through our lives that we are His children. And even though our flesh is wicked, meaning the sinful flesh still abides, here it is, it's present as, John, or as Paul says in Romans 7 so clearly, we have been justified by God and it's God who is the judge. And the Scriptures speak very plainly in the Old Testament concerning the hearts of men. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart of man is wicked. And again, one of the fallacies of today is that many people will say, well, just follow your heart. And especially young people. What a horrible word of advice to give anyone, especially young people. Just what, what, what does your heart tell you to do? Don't listen to your heart. Your heart is wicked and it's deceitful. It's full of deceit. And you can even be deceived by your own heart. So the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Don't follow your heart. Follow God's word. <laughs> Wouldn't that be much better advice? The heart of man is very wicked. Jeremiah 17, 10, the Lord goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So here, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And yet, the Lord says, oh, I know it. You may not even be aware of it fully, but I am. And your own heart can deceive you, but it doesn't fool me, is what the Lord is saying. So here we see... He says, I'm the one who knows. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. I know. So God alone truly knows the depths of the depravity of man's heart. And it is for this reason that we can have confidence despite the wicked, sinful nature which still rises within our lives. Let me give you an explanation of what I mean by that. There's two sides of this you must consider. First of all, if you are not a believer in Christ, no matter who you may have fooled, God is not fooled. He sees and knows your heart. He sees and knows the wickedness. He sees and knows your, your depraved state. He sees and knows no matter how well you may hide from others, no matter how well you may put on a show, no matter how well you may disguise, the reality is God knows. But then as a believer, we must consider this too. God knows our hearts. And there's a, there's a, a joy in that. And here's what I mean. Even the very things that we ignorant of about ourselves, none of this is a surprise to God and He has loved us and redeemed us nonetheless. So there is no sin that's ever going to pop up in my life in which now I have to be concerned because, oh, what if God didn't know about that one? Are you following this? He knows the end from the beginning. And He knows all there is to know about us. And He knows that this flesh is still wicked despite our redemption. He knows that we still commit sin and that we still act in sin at times despite His grace. Not continuing sin, but we act in sin at moments. He knows this. So the point is, we have a confidence in that God already knows and He has still redeemed us regardless. And that's a beautiful truth. Because there's nothing I will ever do or nothing that I will refrain from doing that ever catches God off guard, that ever surprises Him, that ever could, because God, there's no turning with Him, that there's nothing I can do that would ever change God's mind about what He has done in Christ. Now that gives me confidence. And it gives me the, the assurance. That gives me the peace. That gives me the absolute joy of 
it is to know the Lord and walk with Him because I know nothing will ever change what He has done. And so we recognize that God knows all of this. Second, God alone is the judge and it is God that justifies us. 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5, Paul wrote, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. Now he's writing to the Corinthian church, of course, and, and, and some of their hypocrisy. Or of man's judgment, he says, Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet I am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. So here Paul is saying, what you think about me, he's explaining that I'm not justified by what others think of me. Paul is saying, I'm not justified by of what... Uh, by that of which I think of myself, or that I know even of myself. He says, rather, that I am justified by and of the Lord. It is the Lord who justifies, it's the Lord who is the judge. Now listen again to this. Your friends may forgive you for something, but they don't know everything there is to know about you. And people say, oh, you just need to forgive yourself. You may forgive yourself of something, so to speak, and yet, you know what? You don't even know your own heart as well as we should know our own hearts. But God is the one who forgives, and God is the one who justifies. And in doing that, He forgives, He justifies, and He's the one who knows all. Again, does that not provide us assurance and confidence in Him? Because there's nothing that surprises Him about us. Romans 8, 33 and 34, Paul says, anything to the charge of God's elect. It is God that justifies. Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So here he is saying, who's going to charge God's elect? Not that people can't, and let me, let me provide the context here. Paul is not saying that, that no one could accuse us of something rightfully, because we are guilty of stuff, are we not? And Paul is not saying that no one can falsely accuse us, because that surely can take place. What he is saying, no matter, even if someone were to charge us rightly, justly, that we are guilty and they call us out and they say, oh, that he's guilty of this, that, that can be true. Or if someone were to falsely accuse us, here's what Paul is saying. No matter of any of that, we, is, are, not, we are not condemned. As Paul goes on to say, of course, in Romans chapter, or it begins this chapter, this is 8, 33 and 34, but at the beginning of this chapter, you remember what Paul said in chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans? There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Again, that's descriptive, not prescriptive. So in that latter part of that verse, Paul's not saying, okay, there's no condemnation so long as you're doing what you're supposed to do. He's saying, no, there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Then he says, by the way, those in Christ Jesus, they do not walk in the flesh, but they walk in the Spirit. So those who are not condemned are those who are walking in the Spirit because it's only as you are in Christ that you will walk in the Spirit. And that's what Paul is saying. So there's no condemnation. So he says, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. It is Christ that is risen again. It is Christ who intercedes. And it is God who justifies. For those who do not know the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, if you think your heart condemns you, remember, God knows all, every secret thought, every hidden sin. And for those who do know God's forgiveness in Christ, even though we sin and our hearts blame us of our failures, God is greater than our hearts. And here's the other part of that. Paul or John is teaching us here and saying, look, so your heart condemns you? 
Why would our heart condemn us? Because we're guilty, and we know that. But he says, guess what? God is greater than your heart. He is greater. Romans 5, 19-21, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Look, that is true in the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sacrifice of Christ, the Father sacrificing His Son, and the Son sacrificing His life. But might I remind you, that is a continual reality in the life of the believer. God's grace is abundantly greater than our sin. That as sin hath reigned, Paul says, so that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Verses 21 and 22 of 1 John 3. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Now these verses pertain to our prayers and having confidence not only that God will answer our prayer, but that He will receive that of which we ask. We will receive that of which we ask. Now as we've seen from previous verses here in the truths of Scripture, we don't have confidence because of our works or because of our efforts, but our confidence is in God. So let us be clear in understanding that when he says, if our heart condemns us not, we have confidence toward God. First of all, let's understand. So if our hearts are not condemning us, the only reason our hearts do not condemn us is because we recognize God is greater than our hearts, God is greater than our flesh, God is greater than our sin, His grace is greater than our sin. And so we recognize the truth that I conveyed to you just a moment ago, that Though we still commit sin from time to time without question, God's grace is greater than that sin, and our confidence is in God's work and finished work in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that He is all-sufficient to provide all that is needed for the completion of my redemption, regardless of everything and anything else. So now I have confidence toward God. I have confidence in Him and what He has done. Therefore, my heart does not condemn me. Now, the moment my heart condemns me, it's obviously because, again, I'm looking at me and my failure rather than looking to Christ and His sufficiency. But there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. So as I am recognizing who I am in Christ because of Christ, then my heart is not condemning me. It does not mean I, do not, I must not confess sins. Of course I confess sins. It does not mean that I'm not guilty of committing sins. Of course I am guilty of committing sins. But I recognize that God's provision is all-sufficient, as John says in 1 chapter 2 call with me. But we have an advocate. He says, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you hear what John's saying? Oh, I wrote this so you you won't sin, but guess what? You're going to sin, and when you sin, there is Christ the righteous who is God's provision for your sin. So he says, whatsoever we ask, verse 22, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So again, don't be, don't be confused by what John states here. John's already made this so clear, and we'll see this continually. And John is not saying, okay, we get what we want because we're doing a good job at doing what God wants us to do. That's not what John is saying here. It may appear to be what he's saying, but that's not actually what he is saying. And that would go against everything concerning uh, all of Paul's teaching, all of Scripture's teaching about it's not of our works. It's not because we're doing a good job, obviously. It's God's grace. So if we do live our lives being enlightened by the truth of God's Word, by His Spirit, as believers, as followers of Christ, in fellowship with God, in fellowship with Christ, in agreement with God's Word, being submitted to His Word, then our hearts do not condemn us. 
by living in total obedience and surrender to the will of God, we can have confidence that God not only hears, but also He answers our very prayers and desires. Now, let us understand what John is saying here as well. The purpose of prayer is not to change God's mind. There is no shadow of turning with God, and you do not have the ability to change God. You need to understand that. You don't change God's purpose, God's plan, God's will, His design. You don't change His mind about anything. But rather, the purpose of prayer is that God is changing us. When our hearts are in tune with God, which is evidenced by a life of submission to God, then we seek after that which God desires, and we will not desire to change God's plan. Again, we're told in the Old Testament, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Well, that does not mean, oh, if I'm delighting in God, I get what I want, in the sense of now God is going to bend to my desires. What that's saying is, if we are delighting in God, it is God who authors our desires. So if I am delighting in Him, guess who gives me my desires? The very desires I have are not because my sinful flesh wants something, If I'm delighting in the Lord and in His truth, it is now God who authors and He is the origin of my desires. My desires are now coming from Him, not from me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Not my will, but thine be done. The Heavenly Father's will becomes more sought after than one's own desires when that life is totally submitted to Him. Jesus in the flesh, was absolutely, totally submitted to the Father, was he not? To the Father's purpose, to the Father's plan, to the Father's will, to the Father himself. And we find that Jesus is saying, not my will in this flesh, but your will be done. So it's not about what this flesh would desire, it's about your purpose and plan, and Christ desired that more than anything else. The latter part of verse 23 says, we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, the Scriptures are very clear concerning any attempts we make to please God. Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Where does faith come from? From God. Right? From His Word. It's from God. Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. We cannot please God by our efforts. So John isn't, isn't teaching us, okay, well, if you, really, if you really strive to please God and you do everything he, 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 you know, he wants you to do, then that means that he'll, give you, he'll, he'll, he'll concede and he'll give you the things you want because you've pacified him and made him happy. That's how many would view this. That's not at all what John is teaching us. John is saying, whenever our lives are submitted to the Lord, we are living in obedience to Him and submission to Him, then guess what we will be praying? We will be praying His will, not ours. And when we pray His will, guess what He does? He hears. And when we pray His will, guess what He does? He accomplishes His will. And it's not because we pray it. The transformation takes place as we submit our lives to God and He lives His life through us. We don't please God by our efforts. The only way to please God is for us to submit to His plan, His purpose, as He works in our lives. In in Romans 12, 2, Paul says, and be not conformed to this world. He he just talked about presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then he says, your 
genuine worship. Then he goes on to say, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So your mind has to be renewed, and that takes place through redemption in Jesus Christ. And it continues to be renewed concerning the fact that we are submitted to the Lord. His desires are now given to us, where now we desire that which he desires, that renewed mind, the mind of Christ. And then he goes on to say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that, so that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So God's will is proven through us as we submit to him having a renewed mind, the mind of Christ, which the mind of Christ always desired the Father's will and purpose to be accomplished to his glory. So I'm going I'm to give you something tonight that can help you. Ready? I'm going to tell you how you can have every prayer you pray answered exactly as you pray it. You know how to do that? Submit yourself and pray according to God's will. (laughs) It's that simple. And that's the only way every prayer is going to be answered the way you pray it. Is it not true that we often pray amiss? Do you understand what that means? Amiss, it means as though one is missing the target. We pray amiss, we pray according to our will. And then we expect God to do what we want Him to do. We are to pray according to His will, submitting ourselves. Nothing wrong with making our requests. No, nothing wrong with bearing our heart out before God. We're, we, we have a privilege to do that. But we must understand, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. So I, want to, I must and I desire to submit to you and to your will and to your purpose. And so your will be done. And guess what? When we pray accordingly, God's will be done. Guess what happens every single time? God's will is done. But let me ask you this. What if you don't pray according to God's will? Guess what happens every single time? God's will is done. So whether you pray according to God's will or not, His will will be done. The the way and the privilege is God allows us to be aligned with Him, in tune with Him, so that we get to see the joy of prayers being answered according to His will as we have prayed according to His will. And He includes us in this. You must remember something. The whole joy and privilege of the Christian life really boils down to this, that God has included us. That's what it amounts to. God has included us. He's included us in His eternal purpose. He's included us in His redemption. He's included us in His family. He's included us in His purpose and will being accomplished as we would pray according to His will. God has included us. That's the joy. His will is going to be done no matter how you pray. No matter how I pray. But we pray amiss and we miss the joy of being submitted to the Lord allowing, and Him allowing us to see His will unfold and, and prayers answer according to His will. And we, when we submit to His will, then guess what? It all gets answered just like He says it will because it's His will being accomplished, not yours. I, I'm just going to say it. There's too many people today, too many professing Christians, too many believers who due to poor theology and lack of teaching and study themselves view God as though He is some genie in a bottle up in heaven that we say the right things and do the right things and all of a sudden He's going to grant us our three wishes. Listen, that is not God at all. And God is not really interested in what you want and what you desire. But you know what God is interested in doing? Including us in what He wants and desires. And that, again, is the joy. 
So as we surrender to the Lord, His desire become our desires, meaning that we begin to pray according to His will. And biblical prayer results in us forsaking our own desires that we might embrace God's desires. That's really what it amounts to. Lord, this is what I would like, but you know what? That doesn't matter. What matters is that your will is accomplished and that we are submissive to your will being accomplished and that we glorify you as your will is accomplished regardless of whether you answer prayers the way we want or not, meaning as we would pray them or ask them. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave his commandment. Now look, John says, notice, let's go back one verse and then read this together with it. Let's read verse 22. With 23, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. So how is it that we are keeping his commandment? We are obeying the gospel. <laughs> and what is obedience to the gospel? It's absolute dependency upon the Lord Jesus Christ, God's provision for us because we can't do anything to please God. So his son has pleased him. And so now are obedient and submitting unto his son and believing and putting our entire spiritual well-being, totally committing ourselves, committing our entire spiritual well-being to he, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's provision for us. This is his commandment. First is the obedience to the gospel, and second, then as a result, we love one another. But remember, you will only love one another as Christ has loved you and as you have received his love. Now you, that love is demonstrated towards others because it is Christ living in you. John explains his commandment in this verse. There are two parts to this commandment. Believing on Jesus' name. The word believe in this verse simply means to com it's complete trust and reliance to have confidence. So again, this is not a mere decision that one makes or a simple profession that one makes. This belief is a life-changing reliance upon Jesus Christ, having complete confidence in him by faith. My confidence, hear me please, my confidence is not in what I do and what I do not do. My confidence is in Jesus Christ and what he has done, period. And that's all you can have confidence in as well. Again, loving each other. This is the commandment of Christ, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, that we love our neighbors ourselves. We are to love Christ as he has loved us. And furthermore, Christ says a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Again, I may be able to love someone close to the manner in which I love myself, maybe. But I can never love someone the way that Jesus has loved me. But he can do that. He can do that through us. Verse 24. Well, let me say this first. It's not that we are to love like Christ as much as it is we are to love with his love. So it's, again, it's Jesus living in us, therefore loving through us. And I would venture to say that because of the close connection of, and, and the identifying factor of the love of God in us, which is then demonstrated to others who are especially those of the household of faith, believers in Christ, that, we, that by this shall all men know you are my disciples, Jesus said that you love one another. And so this is obviously inseparably connected to our faith in Christ, is that it produces a love for God and a love for others that wasn't there prior. And that being understood, let me say this. The life of Christ in you produces the love of Christ through you. And I would venture to say that the life of Christ in you is only as genuine as the love it produces through you. 
So if you do not possess a love for the brethren, if you do not possess a love for God himself and a love for truth and a love for righteousness, then guess what? You don't really love God at all. Verse 24, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. John wraps up all he has dealt with in this chapter here in, in this verse, really, verse 24, the last verse of this chapter. It is by God's Spirit abiding in us that we keep, we guard, we cherish, we value His commandments. And we have this assurance, we have this confidence, knowing that He dwelleth in us and we in Him because He is living and working in and through our lives. In the first verse of the next chapter, John warns about the many false prophets and instructs us to try the spirits to make sure they are of God, as we will see. And the indwelling of the Spirit of God will produce not only a transformation within our lives, but as well will produce fruit with from His life within our life, and that is, of course, because the Spirit is the one dwelling in us. In Ephesians 5, 9, and 10, Paul says it like this, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And then verse 10, Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. It is the Spirit's fruit that is pleasing unto the Lord. And you cannot produce fruit. It is the Spirit producing fruit in you. And that's what pleases God. So keeping His commandments isn't you living according to the law. That's not at all what is being talked about here. And by the way, the commandments that are given, oh, the Ten Commandments, I must keep them. No. What did, what did John, how did John identify the commandments? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, loving one another. Isn't that interesting? We are not perfect. But God is. We are not perfect, and what we do is not perfect. But that which He does is a perfect work. We have assurance with God. We have confidence before God. We have confidence with God because we have confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ and His provision. Look, we have got to shed this religious nonsense of how what I do is going to please God and what I don't do is going to please God. Look, that, that's nonsense. The reality is God is pleased in His Son and if we understand that, we have confidence with Him. We pray according to His will. We pray in submission to Him. We approach Him recognizing that we don't have to fear Him as someone who's going to punish us and judge us in the sense of like His wrath falling on us. But we have confidence, we have assurance because our confidence is not in us and what we are doing or what we have done or what we have refrained from doing. Our confidence is absolutely in the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ. I have one thing of which I can boast, and that is the cross of Christ. And that's it. Which is not me boasting in me at all, it's boasting in Him. There was a brief clip. Actually, it was a, a sermon, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Alistair Begg preached. And Alistair Begg preached a sermon, and in, in the midst of the sermon, he made a statement about how he was, he was given an analogy of the thief on the cross and the thief on the cross and, 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 and when, he, when he entered into, into heaven with the Lord that they may have asked him and said, well, um, did you, you know, and of course this is embellished for the sake of the, the point, so bear with me. Um, and this is not verbatim either, but it's similar to what, what was claimed or what was stated. So Alistair Begg is, is preaching to his congregation. He's teaching this and he says, so the thief on the cross, he gets up to heaven with the Lord and they say to him, they say, well, um, well, uh, we're glad you're here, and, um, you know, did, how, did, how did you get here? Did you, did you, uh, were, you, were you like a pastor of the church? Well, no. He said, well, 
were you a Sunday school teacher? Well, no. Did you lead in choir and music? Well, no. Well, did you uh, live your life giving it to serve others? Well, no. Well, how is it that you came here? And he says, he told me I could come. The other man on the cross, Jesus told me I could come. Are you understanding this? The only reason that we will ever be presented before the Lord in glory with Him forever is because Christ has included us. God has included us. It is not what we are doing or what we refrain from doing. It is because of Christ and Christ alone. He is our confidence. So we can come before the Lord in boldness. And boldness does not mean arrogance. It means confidence. Let us boldly, therefore, come into the throne of grace. Not arrogantly. No man can approach God arrogantly. But we can come boldly. We can come with confidence. Why? Because of Christ. So we have confidence in our Lord. Therefore, you know what? Our hearts don't condemn us. It doesn't mean we're not guilty at times. It does not mean that, that we are perfect because we're not. It does not mean that we are sinless because we're not. What it means is this. I rest in the absolute truth and am confident in the work of my Savior in knowing this, that He is all-sufficient, that His grace is greater than my sin. And even though I am guilty, even though I... I fail even though I fall, even though I am not righteous in and of myself, even though this wicked flesh in which I, in which this sinful nature still abides with me, here's what I know. That has nothing to do, one iota of any relevance in my acceptance to God. My acceptance is in Jesus Christ. He has made me accepted in the blood, Ephesians chapter 1. He has made me accepted in Christ. Therefore, I have confidence. If you don't understand this and live in this truth, your life will be like this. It really will, because it's, oh, I'm doing better, no, I'm doing bad. Oh, I'm doing better, oh, I'm doing bad. And it's a constant roller coaster, which is not biblical at all. And again, we're not talking about arrogance. We're talking confidence in Christ. And even when I sin, guess what? He's sufficient. Is he not? And so we rest in the truth confidently in who he is and what he's done. God has included us. But those he includes, he includes. If there's no evidence in your life, as John is speaking throughout this entire book and letter, of the truth of faith in your life, You've never been included. But these exist because he has included us in his purpose and plan.